morning, everyone. We're so glad that you guys are here today. This is super exciting. Um, you guys are charter members of the First Fridays event, so this is super exciting. Woo! Uh, my name is Bruce Roll. I'm a pediatrician here um, at Longell Christian Health Center and one of the chief clinical officers. And so, um, yeah, we're super thrilled to uh, host you guys here. And uh, you know, we've envisioned this, um, and you guys got the email, and obviously you're here, um, to be a monthly gathering for Christian healthcare providers and staff and students, uh, really to connect with one another, um, to learn, and uh, to be really to be refreshed in relationship and in community with, with one another. Um, so why do First Fridays kind of in general? Um, it's really primarily for Christ and his kingdom, I think. Um, ultimately, as Christians, that's what we need to be about. And uh, as Christian healthcare providers, we need to link arms together uh, in this venture. I see my friend Sue Davis over here, um, who a couple months ago um, just reached out to a number of people to get together to support one another in, in prayer. And that was such an amazing time of just uh, linking arms together. Um, so we want this to be about supporting one another as we walk this pathway of, uh, of trying to serve Christ through healthcare. So we're happy to have folks here, whatever your setting, you know, whether it's primary care or specialty care, whether you're in a Christian clinic or not in a Christian clinic, we really want to um, link arms together. A couple of verses I thought of um, when I was thinking about what to say this morning were First uh, John 2, 6, which says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And so that's where I'm kind of getting this uh, image of uh, walking together and kind of linking arms um, that we want to walk as Jesus walked, but to, to be, you know, as the body of Christ, walking side by side in that. And just a chapter before, it's in 1 John 1, 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship uh, with one another. Um, so we want to spur one another on in this, um, that fellowship idea um, to together shine our light um, uh, brighter uh, together as we serve him. And then um, second, um, I realized recently how unconnected uh, Christians are in healthcare across Chicago. Um, medical students have a way to connect, but graduate physicians really have very few venues uh, to connect. Um, and so we wanted to give an opportunity to that because there's so many super folks, um, uh, Christians doing really neat work and living out their faith in unique ways around the city of Chicago and that we could bring in to kind of inspire us in, in that as well too. And so um, I think thirdly, we just, uh, we just need each other, you know, for support. Um, a number of us from Lawndale and other students went to a Christian Community Health Fellowship conference recently, and there was a gal in there who wrote and sang a song, and she was a provider, and she was just in the struggle of the day-to-day. And I think the song was about, I quit 17 times, I wanted to quit 17 times already today or something like that. And, uh, um, you know, because sometimes it's just hard. We need to link arms and support one another. And so um, we want to do that through First Fridays. So um, why First Fridays? Um, you know, I guess simply because it's really easy to remember. And uh, so obviously we'd love to have you guys and have people come on a regular basis. But, um, you know, we know folks are busy and uh, can come sometimes and, and not other times. So if you can come all the time, that's great. If you can come some of the time, that's awesome as well, too, and not feel guilty about the times you miss. Um, and uh, we thank uh, you guys for coming for, for a distance this morning. So we'll be here each month, and uh, we'll be ready when you are. So um, for the first few of these First Fridays, um, today and the next time at least, we'll have um, folks come and share kind of from their experience and expertise, kind of that intersection of faith and medicine and maybe what they're learning from God. And then in future months, we may mix it up. We may do a Bible study. We may have more of a time of prayer and fellowship. Um, and certainly, uh, we want this to um, not just be about God, but to be um, God-centered in the whole thing and, and support one another. And so certainly those of you guys who, if you want to stay after for a little bit, we could have a time of prayer for those who want to do that, um, maybe also loose in, in that area. So, But we'll, we'll kind of be flexible today and kind of learn as we go. Um, but I'm really thankful to CMDA and CCHF for kind of um, uh, getting the word out for us and being our partners in this event. Um, and I'd just like to open us with a word of prayer today, and then we'll have uh, Pastor Brooks uh, come up and introduce our speaker for today. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for uh, this morning and the beautiful sunshine and uh, for everyone who's here today. Lord. 
Africa. Um, as I mentioned, well, we want this to not just be about faith and about stuff, but we want you to be in through this, um, and we want uh, relationships to be developed and connected. We do truly want to hold hands together in order to uh, serve you through this health care. Well, let's say this prayer that everyone will be encouraged uh, today. I'd like to introduce Pastor James Brooks. He is our Chief Ministry Officer at Longdale Christian Health Center. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry you guys didn't get the memo today. It is Bow Tie Friday. And, uh, you know, who knows what it'll be next time. We should have that uh, each, each time. We should have a presentation to that. But, uh, yeah, so, Pastor Brooks. All right. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Douglas Anderson is the professor and chair in the Department of Neuro Neurological surgery at Loyola University Medical Center. Dr. Anderson treats a wider range, wide range of cranial diseases and disorders, including tumors, vascular um, abnormalities, and facial pain. He also treats children, children with tumors and vascular problems. He has been practicing medicine for over 40 years now and has performed um, 3,000 plus complex brain surgeries. On a personal note, I have known Dr. Anderson and his wife, Ann, for roughly 16 years. I've had the privilege of being the youth minister at Grace Lutheran in River Forest, Illinois, and all of Doug and Ann's four children, Joe, Ellie, David, and Kirstie, um, they were a part of the youth program. So one cool thing about being a youth minister is that you get to meet some really cool and fascinating parents. Um, Dr. Anderson is an avid skier, windsurfer, and mountaineer, and has one of the most amazing voices. I mean, he can sing, right? <laughs> He can sing one of the most amazing voices that I've ever heard. On top of all of that is his love and devotion to Jesus Christ. Please welcome Dr. Doug Anderson. Thank you so much. So um, first of all, um, I'd like to Thank you all for being here. This is just an incredible privilege for me to do this, an honor to have this opportunity to speak to you all um, and be a part of this um, first Friday's um, event. Um, and I, I might say, what, what was I gonna talk about? And so while, <clears throat> as Bruce Edmund, we're gonna, you're gonna do a variety of different things, but today, I thought as an inaugural event, I'm going to talk about um, a variety of things, including bringing up the idea of a hallowed tradition in medicine called the Grand Rounds that has been a part of, of uh, a tradition of medicine forever um, <coughs> where people met and discussed um, conditions, uh, patients, uh, discussed what was happening in medicine, discussed the staff, and uh, so forth. So this is kind of in that vein. And um, so the flow of the talk is going to be this introduction I'll give. Um, I'm going to give a James Brooks story. you got to do that. Um, and then I'm going to talk briefly about 40 years um, in the using two different case reports. Then James asked me to read from scripture, which I will do. And then I'm going to talk about definitions, brain, mind, and spirit. That's what uh, my topic is, but it's mysteries of brain, mind, and spirit. And then I'll talk about being together. Um, so this is a scene from the late 1800s at the University of Philadelphia. 
And just picture this. This is, this is the hallowed tradition of Grand Rounds. And so all these people from all over the hospital, nurses, doctors, students, technologists, they were all invited. Um, we've changed a little bit. We don't bring patients into the amphitheater and begin an operation on them uh, in front of all these people. I can't imagine how they could see anyway, but there's an operation uh, on a patient's uh, jaw in this particular instance in that scene. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious, but when I was young, as a medical student, there was a scene similar to this at Cook County Hospital in the Hectone Institute that I used to um, uh, attend and enjoyed a great deal. Um, I want to take a moment to say that <clears throat> because this is a Christian health center, that theology is a part of what we do. And um, you have to be very careful about it, in my view, as to how this works. Um, Joseph Sittler, a professor from the University of Chicago, once said that theology is not just for theologians, it's for all of us to think about how God is intertwined with our work and our daily efforts. Um, and it's a vocation in which the accumulations of the past and the experiences of the present are always freshly attuned to the phenomena of an emerging, changing, frenetically racing world. And it's very true that we live in a, a world that's changing so rapidly. So um, we have to react to that. But the philosopher who desires to fuse the physical and the spiritual and explore the tantalizing concept of the human brain as manifestation of God's image and likeness, he says creates, but it's possible to create a neurotheology that is criticized by both science and theology. Um, it's very difficult for the province of theological thought to invent science, it's not appropriate, nor is it appropriate for science to nullify theological thought. John Polkinghorne, who's a, a favorite philosopher of mine, and I've written book chapters about these topics um, for various, at various times during my career, um, but he says, neither science nor theology should make the mistake of supposing that it can simply answer the other's proper questions. Nevertheless, there has to be a consonance between answers that each gives. If it is indeed the case that there is a fundamental unity of knowledge, there is a fundamental unity of knowledge. God's, God's word, however, um, we're not necessarily at all akin or understanding of God's thoughts. They're beyond our comprehension many times. Such that there is one world created uh, of created um, reality. So that's my introduction. I'm going to be treading lightly on these concepts and carefully, I hope. But this is a, a James Brooks story now time. And here is April 25th, the Christian century. April 25th, 2018, it just came out. I get this magazine. It's a wonderful magazine. Um, publisher is um, Peter Marty. And um, it's been going ongoing for a, look at this, opening of God's house. And you see people moving the, the pews out and creating a large sanctuary. James, this is news, but you've already been there and you're doing it. So he's ahead of the curve a little bit in a variety of different ways. Um, and um, so as he mentioned, we've known each other, our wives, our families for the past 16 or so years. Uh, my son Joe and daughter Ellie were in the, uh, in the first uh, iteration of the youth group. Um, my daughter Kirsten and Jayla were best friends in grade school. Uh, David and Kurt Gronke, who's here, kind of another son, um, were a part of your basketball team. He was a basketball coach for a period of time at Grace. And this, the story picks up right there. So. The basketball team, my son, Kurt, on the team, they walk in, we're at a, an away game, everybody's dressed in a sport coat and tie. And at that point, I'm not sure if you were in bow ties yet, but it was a, a sharp group of people. So the game starts, and um, first quarter, everybody's really kind of staying, uh, you know, the boys are dressed in their 
basketball outfit and tie, but James was still dressed in his uh, coat and tie. By the end of the first quarter, I noticed that the, the tie was loose and the, and, and the coat was unbuttoned, and second quarter, tie was gone, shirt was open, uh, the coat was off. Third quarter, the shirt tails were out, the, 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 the shirt was rolled up, and the fourth quarter, he was sweating about as much as his teammates in his, his charged up. And it looked like he was just about ready to jump out on court and help them win that game. And, and I think to myself, that's kind of James Brooks's body language all the time. He's, he's always kind of ready to go to work and ready to get together. Let's get down to business. Let's study. Let's read. Let's pray. And, and, and while he was studying, the last brief story is while he was studying at Concordia University, he came upon the idea that he had to study Greek so that you understood the New Testament because that's the original language of, 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 of the New Testament. And he thought to himself, I remember him saying, look, I, I can study Greek. I, I can't. So he studies Greek. And then he was a little unsure about how this was going to work, but he hears a piece of, of, of a passage of scripture. I can't remember the exact passage, but in it um, comes the word God um, uh, protects us or God um, uh, seeks us. But the Greek original translation was God pursues us. And James thought, he gave a sermon on this the next week, and James thought, this is a fantastic discovery. Now I really love Greek because God just doesn't seek us, but God pursues us. I remember him saying it basically like that. And it was interesting that I, I remember that sermon. God does pursue us. God needs us. God pursues us. A very active thing. So that's my James Brooks story. So... Um, 40 years. So what I do is um, a variety of different kinds of brain surgery, but this is where I work. This is the map, uh, this is a picture of the skull base. And the skull base is really the easiest part of my work, is understanding every little detail on that. Uh, my, my, my arrow works good. You know, you have to know the planum sinoidale. It's like, it's like a landscape. You have to know the anterior clinoid. You have to know the pores of the brain that, that the, the, uh, the various cranial nerves move in and out of the cranial vault through these teeny little pores. The carotid artery that feeds the brain with blood is uh, coming through another pore. The, uh, the, the pores down here, the glosso uh, the jugular foramen is where the brain sends its blood away, back to the, to the lungs and heart for oxygenation. And there come out the, and in the uh, glossopharyngeal nerve and the vagus nerve that communicates with all of our, our viscera. And so everything's happening. It's kind of like a, it's the doorway into the brain for, and then of course the foramen magnum where the spinal cord and the vertebral arteries are. Um, and so you have to know every little detail about this, but then, of course, there's a bit more. You have to know, and what I do, I think is my primary um, kind of work, is uh, I'm a cranial nerve surgeon. I operate at the base of the brain, skull base, and the cranial nerves, every one of them, the, the olfactory, the optic, uh, with its chiasm, crossing fibers and, and rearranging and inverting the visual experience. The third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerves, which allow us to move our eyes in, in, in conjugate uh, capability. The fifth cranial nerve, which is the largest cranial nerve, um, and it subserves mainly sensation from the face, um, which I'll talk about a bit later. The seventh and eighth cranial nerves, hearing, and vestibular, all through the same foramen. Why is that? I, I, I don't think anybody knows why that is. It just is. The balance comes through the same pore into the brain as the cochlear nerve comes into the brain 
and the vestibular nerves are two, and the cochlear nerve is one. The vestibular nerves cross-talk across the brainstem so that we have the option, if you lose that nerve, of regaining balance and teaching the other side of the brain to get balanced, whereas the cochlear nerve doesn't. It just, you, you lose that, but you lose that. And then, in that same pore, is the facial nerve, which is the facial expression, which, believe it or not, physicians just didn't get it as to how important that was. I'll talk about that a little later. Um, this, the ninth and 10th cranial nerves I alluded to as the, um, the glossopharyngeal uh, nerve. I won't go too far into that, but the, but the 10th cranial nerve is now becoming extremely interesting to everybody because of the gut biome and the communication of the vagus nerve with the brain and the gut and all of the other viscera is opening up new um, research all the time. And the 12th cranial nerve, um, the 11th cranial nerve operates a couple of muscles. It doesn't, it's not all that sexy, but um, the 12th cranial nerve uh, is a single, a single uh, function nerve as well, but it's without, without it, you can't talk because you can't move your tongue. So the, the hypoglossal nerve, um, and it's just, that's, that's a world that I love living in. There's more to it than that. There are cisterns in the brain on the right. So the cisterns are filled with fluid coming from the ventricles. And the cisterns are, when you go operate in the cisterns, it's like scuba diving under a microscope. Um, you know, if you start buzzing a bleeding vessel, you get, you get the bubbles of, you don't see these little bubbles of smoke and uh, you, you see these beautiful vessels and, and the arachnoidal membranes, arachnoidal spider web, it's a web of membranes in this area of surrounding the midbrain, the mesencephalon and the optic apparatus up front and the sylvian fissures up front and so forth and so on. So you have a chance to see all that. And, and, and where does that CSF, the cerebrospinal fluid come from? It's from the third, uh, from the ventricles of the brain. The ventricles, I think that you used to be called the ventricles because people thought it was a cooling thing. Uh, that, that, that before neuroscience was really developed, they didn't have any idea that the ventricles were just used to cool everything off. And the, and the heart was the big, the big importance. That's where feelings were. The brain, I'm not so sure about what was important there. The, the Greeks, and the, uh, yeah, some of the ancient Greeks understood this, but it was lost for a period of time. Uh, but here comes the, this beautiful picture of um, the ventricular system, and I'm looking at it um, through a, um, an endoscope. So you saw that picture. There's a few pores there in, in the brain, and this particular substance on the lower right here is the choroid plexus, the ultrafiltration of blood turning into just pure water into the ventricle. And this is a foramen of Monroe that leads from the lateral ventricles, those horn-like, into the third ventricle, which is split-like. And in this particular operation, what I'm doing is now visualizing down here the mammillary bodies, which are a part of the hypothalamus where emotional memories are evaluated and sent up to other areas of the temporal lobe. And you can see the blood vessels through the pulsating membrane, which I'll open up um, to allow for fluid to escape from entrapped ventricles in this situation. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily beautiful to operate in this region. Um, first case report. Let me tell you about a 38-year-old gentleman he presents in the office out of the blue with a history of hearing loss. I've been losing my hearing in, in my right ear and balance disorder. I feel like I'm wobbly. I'm an athlete and I feel like my balance is off. Um, I bumped into a wall the other day and at that point my wife saw me and said, you're gonna come to the doctor's office and we're gonna figure this out. And, um, and so he also noticed a couple of facial twitches so where does this localize the neurologic? Well, clearly hearing, that's acoustic 
and cochlear nerve, and, um, and the balance is the vestibular nerve, and the facial twitches. So it's all right in that area of the, of the facial, vestibular, cochlear complex. And this neurologic examination is essentially normal. There's first and second acuity fundoscopic examiners, normal. EOMs, the extraocular muscles are normal. He had a little bit of nystagmus, which is a beating. Uh, when he looked to the right, his facial, uh, facial function was normal. Um, that, uh, and the eighth cranial nerve demonstrated um, profound hearing loss. So at that point, uh, we move ahead and look at images that are related to um, figure out what it was. And so he had hidden in his head um, at the skull base in the region of the eighth cranial nerve complex, a lesion about the size of a chicken's egg. And it compressed the fluid flow out of the ventricles such that he was developing um, enlarged ventricles and a slightly wider third ventricle. Um, there is no real way of dealing with this with radiation because it's too large. And the radiation, even though we are now moving with small columns of radiation, either gamma radiation or accelerated pro uh, protons or mainly accelerated electrons, um, th there's no way of doing that without damaging this incredibly important part of the brainstem, which uh, houses a variety of other things. This goes all the way up to the top of the posterior fossa. I'll show that all the way down to the bottom where where the where the foramen of magnum is. So what do we do? We um, talk to him about here's what we suggest a, a, a fairly extensive operation that's going to last some eight, maybe six, maybe twelve hours. The longest that I've ever done was actually from 7.30 in the morning until 1 a.m. for a tumor like this because we added a brainstem implant for hearing. And these are the pathways to the skull base. And we're going to use a pathway that leads us to this tumor. So we incise. We have to take some bone out in front of and in back of the large sigmoid sinus, which drains blood out. The jugular vein starts right here. And it brings us to face to face with these large, uh, with large and small vessels that are end arteries. In other words, there's no collateral circulation for the brainstem arteries in general. Collateral circulation, if you occlude the vertebral on one side, you will get collateral circulation from the other vertebral. But at the basilar, there are perforators that go right into the brainstem, and there's no other way or gifts there in most instances. So the other thing about this is that it, the tumor incorporates some of the larger vessels. So what do we do? Well, um, yeah, the larger vessels that are these um, end arteries that I'm talking about. So this is the original picture that I showed, and it's what I sit and do, which is actually not a very healthy job. You know, you sit in a, um, you sit in a, uh, a motorized chair so that I can, I have foot pedals and I can raise and lower the thing and, <laughs> and move around. The arms go up, I, I, you know, it's kind of like turning. And then I look through the objective lens and there's this enormously intense light that can be, I have three different options for what kind of light I want to use. If it's, if it's a tumor that I want to see and it's invading other brain tissue, I can use a fluorescence microscope, liver a dye, and that helps me differentiate the difference between tumor and normal brain. We're doing research on that. Um, another one, this shows me the blood vessels so that I can see if, is that blood vessel going in and coming out? And I can almost see into the brain tissue to see how those blood vessels are working with endosine and green. And then a yet another um, type of thing. And the critical thing here is that teamwork. And I, I have a picture, this is 30, 30-some years old, of John Leonetti and myself uh, when we were just starting out in the, um, in the late 1980s. And uh, yeah, that's kind of embarrassing to have to reveal. But we've been going at it a long time. 
and he is the guy that's capable of drilling through the petrous bone, petrous meaning rock, Peter being the rock on which I, that's all, all there, and, and um, the, he, he can drill through the bone without actually damaging these bones that are encased. So it's like reversed, uh, it's like doing a, a Michelangelo, you know, just taking a piece of rock and then all of a sudden you see the David, um, uh, but not quite that incredible. Um, but then he's able to drill down to be able to visualize the nerve bundle, which is the facial nerve, uh, the two vestibular nerves, and so forth. And so when I take over, I open the, the dura, and then I look down. Now, since the start of all this, the microscope has been important, but I'm using it in my right hand, I have an, a microelectrode, which I'm delivering a 0.1 milliampere stimulus, and I'm finding the nerve, the facial nerve, so such that I can preserve it. And this is why it takes uh, quite a bit of, of, of time. Wow, it's giving me a last time, and I'm, I'm glad I see that. Um, and, uh, and, and at the end, the facial nerve, which is about the size of a piece of linguine, maybe a tea bit thicker, but not really, gets flattened by the nerve and uh, taking the time to dissect the tumor off um, takes hours. And so you have to be very patient to do this. You have to know exactly how the, the nerve tends to be moved by the various um, structures of the tumor. Uh, Kurt is working with me on, he's Kurt Gronke is one of the basketball players, <laughs> but now he's a medical student. And, uh, and he's working with me on research that tries to define the path of the facial nerve. And we hope that every patient looks like this. This is not the case, but uh, he wakes up from surgery. I said, can I take your picture and show this to people? Because it's remarkable. That was his tumor that came out and he woke up with a normal facial function. That did not happen when I was training. And um, at the end, we, we will get at some point uh, a, a magnetic resonance image to see if we've taken the whole thing out or left some behind. Usually I know, but not always. Do I can, not always can I make that judgment. So we get a particular picture. This is his most recent scan. And he's done getting scans. He's had all the scans he needs. He's done with that, that problem. And so in the interest of science at an academic institution, here we're, we're collating, keeping databases huge databases. Uh, now it's over 1,500 patients in the database for this particular disorder. Uh, it's over, a, it's about 1,000 patients for this disorder alone. And um, we look at various parts of that database and we'll write papers, for instance, this one in 2005, where we found that we were, nobody else was reporting facial nerve preservation of 80% at that point in time. And so we published that in 2005 with the Journal of Neurosurgery. And 2005 till now, we looked again, and we had 105, uh, 105 patients. And we noticed over the years, we got better and better. But that was correlated with leaving little teeny bits of tumor, no more than eight millimeters in size in largest diameter, that were removed from the vasculature so that they would actually melt away because they would be vascularized. So, that gave us a little bit of an inclination to not be quite so aggressive uh, when we were doing the operation. And keep in, keep in mind that the, 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 the context of this, this is the um, famous book by the father of American neurosurgery in the 1920s and 30s, uh, when he first started trying to do acoustic tumors. And of course, there was no way to really diagnose them quickly at that point. So they were all this large type of tumor which was life-threatening. He had a 70% mortality rate and he was shocked. And he thought to himself, I, I don't think we should be doing this. And an, a, a guy by the name of Olaf Kuna from Sweden came and watched him operate and said, here, we can do this better. Now, keep in mind, I was gonna talk about this a little bit, I'm not gonna say, but, but a very brief word. The idea, do no harm. 
you know, we don't want to do harm. And that particular saying is not a part of the Hippocratic Oath, but it's a very popular saying, and, and there are books written about it. However, trying to do better sometimes requires risk. Everything we do, in a way, trying a new drug, trying this drug, making the diagnosis, um, saying here's what we need to do, requires taking a bit of a risk because we can't predict the future. So do no harm is a thing that we concentrate on, but we realize is an impossible thing to attain if we are to progress. Every new, think about the AIDS epidemic and the new uh, the retroviral drugs. Th th those were risky things to try. And on the other hand, there has to be a very ethical approach to this. So uh, that's the context. And nowadays, um, in the thousand patients that we've compiled and are working on sending to the publisher for, for we've got zero mortality. Nobody dies from that operation, even the largest tumors. We've learned, A, to stop. B, if we can, B, to preserve the facial nerve because it turns out that the psychological consequences of damaging a facial nerve are quite profound. And nobody realized that. The doctors are saying, oh, hey, what a great operation. I got that tumor out. Facial nerve palsy. Well, yeah, that's okay. They're alive and they'll, they'll recover from that. Well, it's not quite that simple. Second case report. And I'm on time. This is a 64-year-old woman with a significant past medical history. She just started having paroxysms of hemifacial pain, just on the right side of the face. And um, this is back in 1977-78. Uh, I was an intern. I didn't know what she had. She was at my church, and her, her daughter was in the choir. Both she and her daughter passed away are dead. Um, her daughter, Marion Brown, just died this particular um, year. And um, Louise Gladwig, uh, uh, Marion's mother, uh, died in uh, 1982. I never had a chance to treat her, but I watched her with these horrible things. I had not seen it as a physician at that point. And so um, it turns out to be trigeminal neuralgia, which used to be call, called the suicide pain. And um, before drugs were invented for it. Now there are several drugs, but during Louise's time, there was one drug, carbamazepine, that was useful for the, for the disorder, and she couldn't tolerate it. It would make her completely unbalanced, and so she was unable to take that. Trigeminal nerve is the largest cranial nerve. I showed you that earlier, and it has an enormous um, uh, effect on the face if you have a disorder of the trigeminal nerve, which can be of a variety of causative mechanisms. Those, when, when there's a blood vessel that's compressing the, the trigeminal nerve in its intracisternal, you know, that area of the cistern that I showed you, where that cistern is, if there's a blood vessel pressing against the trigeminal nerve, it can sometimes cause a loss of myelination or the, the the insulation of the nerve gets destroyed, and now all of a sudden, there's this kind of like a shorted out cord. And the, the nerve, which is very, very specific with regard to where those fascicles are going, is confused, and it sends it instead of to perhaps the simple touch, it sends it to the pain pathway. This is the thalamus where the next uh, when you go through a crazy lemniscal pathway, which is um, <coughs> something that we're also doing research on. But this is the thalamus of the brain. It's the coolest thing to think about the fact that these little homunculi, little diagrams of human beings, are parcelated in the thalamus. The thalamus is the sensory nucleus, the major sensory nucleus in the brain. And so everything's funneled up through the sensory organs of the skin and of the everything, uh, touch and hair, movement of the hair is right here, that little guy. 
and uh, movement of the muscle twitch. That's up here. Your, your circ uh, more anteriorly, it becomes more psychological, like sleep-wake cycle, um, and so forth. It's an extraordinary thing, and it's basically there to put a break on the sensations coming at us every moment and every, so if you're interested in this lecture, which I hope you are, <laughs> you are listening and you're forgetting about not thinking about your foot until I told you, now you're thinking about your foot. You immediately can, you know, sense in it. That's the thalamus, kind of sending that. And if it's something that you really need to know about, the anterior cingulum, which is kind of like the sentinel, or the, the posterior portion of the cingulum, the sentinel of the brain is, so anyway, this, this is why facial pain is so intense and so present when it happens, is because the facial sensory uh, area of the brain is so large on the cortex, so much information that it takes a lot more cortex than, for instance, anything else. The fingers are pretty big. So trigeminal neuralgia is this, this frequent disorder um, called, uh, and uh, it can be idiopathic, it can cause, I have one patient who is driving a car down the expressway and a rock flew off a, a truck and hit her in the face and a year after plastic surgery, uh, oral maxillofacial surgery, fixed everything, she was left with horrific pain. So it can ca be caused by anything, but the most common cause is something like this. So this is the brainstem at the upper pons at the level of the cerebellar peduncles. A lecture on that of itself is fascinating. But here's the trigeminal nerve coming in from the, um, the base of the skull at the Caesarean ganglion. And this is a pretty clean trigeminal nerve. You, you know, it's got this angle to it. So, but on this side, this patient had vascular compression. It was a tangle of blood vessels that were compressing the nerve. So um, we go in on that when, the, when medicines just simply stops working. And now we have multiple medicines we try before we do any surgery, but the veins and the arteries are, um, are, are um, there. And this is what we do. We're now operating <coughs> on a patient with a deviated trigeminal nerve and are moving a blood vessel, which is a branch of the superior cerebellar group and moving it away from the nerve, I'll put in a small Teflon pillow, micro Teflon pillow about the size of a BB, or a um, small portion of the muscle. Sometimes I like muscle against the nerve and Teflon against the, so there are various ways of doing it. But we look at this very carefully. You can optimize, we've documented, you can optimize the um, how a patient's going to do by looking at those very careful um, uh, uh, images of the nerve and then you go in there and you find basically what you've seen on your images in about 90% of the time, but not all the time do you see this. So we developed an operation based upon research that we did with a group from Germany uh, called Brain Lab and we were able to develop probabilistic tra um, tractography, not that we were, they were, it, it, they did that work, I didn't, but I used that work and then tracked the trigeminal nerve, which has a single bundle that separates from all of the other bundles. They go to various nuclei, simple touch, proprioception, knowing where your head is or your face is in space. But then there's this one group, which is all pain fibers, and that's what we, found came out as a elbow, kind of a loose elbow downward into the spinal cord. And there we developed an operation um, for uh, trigeminal neuralgia and published that after 50 patients. So that was a new operation that nobody had done before, but it was similar to previous um, ablative procedures of removing these, these small fibers um, and it worked extremely well on patients with multiple sclerosis. Uh, and so we published a couple of things, case report number two. Now scripture. So 
it's Easter. You know, we're coming to this coming, it's been 40 days this Wednesday since Easter. And in, during that 40 days up until the ascension of Christ to heaven, he makes this incredible series of appearances or appearance. And the one that I've selected is this. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I added one other additional verse from Luke because I think it's so interesting. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So this is the Caravaggio famous painting of the Renaissance, the incredulity of Thomas, who then takes a moment and heals the wounds of Christ's body. This is such a vivid, and so this is extraordinarily sensational, sensational, that the senses are, are overwhelmed. The, the disciples see. They're not sure what they're looking at. They hear the words of, the, of Christ. They are in disbelief. They are fearful. They then become joyful. Then Jesus asks for a piece of fish and eats it. So this sensual, extraordinary moment, so dramatic, has, you know, how do we take that in? These sens sensory cells of the skin and so forth, I've put in, and it's, it's, a, it's a, how do we, you know, the skin, these sensory fibers that are activated, that the, the, the sensation of touch has long been kind of like a, a, not so important because the, when people say, what's the most powerful sense? They usually answer vision. Or some people will say hearing. But the truth of the matter is, is that all of the senses have their own particular thing. Some people will say olfactory sense is the most important. It's, it, it's, it's seen everywhere in the, well, everybody has their opinion, but every sense is a unique and particular way of information entering our brain. And the sense of touch has become especially interesting because it turned out to be one of the most hard problems. Making a robot feel something turned out to be much harder than making a robot, a robot mobile, or making a robot see, or making a robot hear. We have every one of us something in our cell phone that already does that for us. Hi, my name's Siri. What's your, what can I help you? You know, they talk to us. They, these robots, but having something feel turns out to be a, a, a precision of haptics. Haptics is the Greek word for sensation. Turns out to be an extremely difficult problem. And that was the thing that convinced Thomas that Christ had arisen, healing. So I'm thinking now about the sciences and you think about when science came about in the last <coughs> 10 minutes. Yep, it's 40 minutes, so uh, last five minutes, I'm gonna do this fast. But the modern era, so when Renaissance came, people thought science was the coolest thing because everything you discovered about science would bring us closer to God. But Nikolai Copernicus and then Galileo said, Oh, here's what science has taught me. 
uh, that the Earth isn't the center of the universe. Rather, it's really revolving around the sun. And that meant excommunication for Galileo until very recently, <laughs> interestingly. Um, the, the church didn't like that. But now, yeah, the scientific method proved powerful. And um, it was impressive that science was gaining ground and became very, very prevalent and very convincing. But pretty soon, uh, everything turned into kind of a reduction. Like it was all about evolution and that's it. That's why, you know, we're just, why are we, why do we act the way we do? Um, it was kind of like not very, it was very reductionist. So let me just finish by talking about, okay, I'm gonna move through this very quickly, about definition. So the brain, organ of soft nervous tissue contained in the skull vertebrae, functioning as the coordinating center of sensation and intellectual nervous activity. So we're obviously not gonna have the time, time to talk about the brain, but the brain is, is, when you look at it, is kind of unimpressive. It's pretty beautiful, but it's a piece of tissue. Um, when Raymond Cajal started investigating with uh, silver dyes, you could see extraordinary beautiful uh, beauty, beauty in the, the single neuron. We still don't know how many different kinds of neurons there are. Then the parcellation of the brain into modes, modalities, where this existed, speech existed, that came with Brokaw, but now it's been defined. So speech exists, motor speech is up here um, in the frontal region, and comprehen comprehension of speech is located in the temporal region. So the modules of the brain became very popular, but then the connectivity of the brain became very popular with this huge amount of information in each of these um, images. Think about the fact that it's been discovered that the infant creates a, an astounding 1.5 to 2 million connections per second after her abrupt introduction to the world at birth. So this huge stream of information coming into the infant's every sensory receptor, certainly vision, looking, seeing, and pretty soon this progression of hierarchy and you begin to now have a child looking at you and understanding what you may do at the age of around one and a half, my pediatric patients start looking at me like, don't come near me, <laughs> you know? And they, they realize that this is a foreign person that, that, and so I've tried to learn how to deal with that. The modular, the modular uh, brain, however, it's not matched by a modular mind. The mind is a, is a fluid and comprehensive uh, integration of all of those things. So this is too much, sorry, but these intrinsic patterns of activity that are subconscious, uh, they work while we're asleep. 60% of the activity of the brain continues on working while we're asleep. Nobody knows exactly why this connection is made, this connection is made, that connection is made while we're sleeping or that connection is pruned, or this one, you haven't used it long enough, or this is not good. There's a theory of schizophrenia that now looks at the inability to prune various connections leads to people, oh, I've been told to walk out of this room now. No, you know, this, this, the people hear things and, and all of a sudden it's very real, but it happens to be possibly a lack of the brain's pruning in that situation. So at any rate, the mind and the brain are inseparable, but they are, it's a concept that remains paradoxically profound. The mind, it's a central mystery. And uh, the most remarkable thing about the universe is, is that it is accessible to our understanding. And the converse must be also true that it's a remarkable thing that we are, that our understanding is of a kind to find the universe accessible. Okay. I, I'm going to finish this up because I uh, could talk for a little longer. I talked, I wrote a book chapter about mystical um, Christian mysticism and how we come, um, consciousness is a, 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 what science would think is a hard problem, but we think of as a mystery. I think of it as a mystery. So it's a qualitative, personally 
subjective experience uh, for each and every one of us. Okay. The spirit. End of talk right here. Is that the classical soul is more ourselves than we are. Uh, a loving and well-loved companion, loyal to us, uniquely entrusted to us, to whom we entrust ourselves. It's kind of like the ideal of who we might be, etc. Traditionally, souls are spoken of as saved or lost, being the immortal part of humankind, even though they are also thought of as unoffending, indeed, as offended against when we misuse our world agency. So science tell us, tells us that there is no such thing as a soul. Science, neuroscience, some people will say, that's, that's, that's not really necessary anymore. Um, however, there's, science gives us no way of accounting for the phenom phenomenon of self-awareness that makes our thoughts, doubts, and dreams, and memories, and antipathies so interesting to us, and our frustration with our faults and failures so acute. So when I think of soul, I think of my mom playing the piano, my dad singing with me. I was filling in for the baritone who was sick that night. My uncle and my... Um, late friend, um, my, my, the only guy, my, my uncle and I are still alive. Everybody else is gone. Those are part of the great cloud of witnesses. Um, and the 40 years that I've spent, I've also spent being a part of the church and singing at that church. Uh, and um, so, so that's been a big part. And then I'm going to end with this statement or this question. Does God see the world as a problem to be solved or a gift to be enjoyed? Question. Does Christ become incarnate because there's a job of redemption to be done and only he can do it? Or because the whole point of creation was that God would dwell with us terrestrially in Jesus and eternally in heaven? How do we seek an answer to such a question? That was uh, from an essay by Sam Wells about being with, being for, working with, working for, and today it was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have a little bit of time for questions, or what do you think? If there are any questions, I might. Okay. One or two questions? If not, thank you very much, and I'll turn it over to you. You've got a question. Yeah, I, I, so, so for honestly, the, the brain is more accessible uh, as an object to be studied, and it is. The mind is less accessible. Consciousness is extremely inaccessible to study, in my view, the way that people are studying um, consciousness through um, optical illusion and so forth and so on. Um, is foreign to me. I don't think they're addressing actually the problem of consciousness. And actually, I don't think consciousness is something that we can solve. It, it's defined as a hard problem, but I think it's a mystery. How, we, how our brains function like this, to me, will remain a mystery. In fact, a lot of neuroscientists that I talk with are starting to recognize that, similar to the cosmos, um, you know, while people think that we will solve the question of you know, dark matter. We don't know what dark matter is. We don't even know how many neurons, different kinds of neurons there are. We have no idea of how the trillions of connections are maintained and locked and made. Um, so the soul is a, for me, a spiritual essence. It's not in the province of science. 
and it is not subject. For instance, my dad died of Alzheimer's disease. Um, it was extraordinarily painful because he was an electronics engineer who had patents and left and right, and asked me frequently, why am I allowed to be alive at this point? I can't remember anything. He had that much insight, and if we sang together, he could remember the words to that piece that I had up there, and we'd sing. And that part of his brain was functioning. Was he diminished as a human being to a degree? There was no question that he was diminished. He felt it, and he expressed it, and complained about it. But for me, his soul is washed clean and is perfected. But that's a spiritual interpretation. And I don't have any physical interpretation of a soul. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. So what we'll do, uh, I'm going to sing, um, maybe some of you know the old 100th, and you could sing with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 